Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we are here to give you a little mini episode about the latest Scream movie. Oh, he's a ghost, he's a god, he's a man, he's a guru. You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan, designed and directed by his red right hand. We've been waiting to do this for a long time. Back during the Doctor of the Dead days, we did a run immediately after we did our run of Halloween, which Mm -hmm. was sort of like my home slasher franchise when I was younger. And still feels that way, I guess. We then followed up with yours, the series that's like closest to your heart, the Scream movies. Mm -hmm. And we did all four. And at the time, I don't remember because we haven't revisited it. We probably talked about what you're hoping for in the future if they ever did. And then, of course... Scream 5 was coming along, which, of course, as we know now, is Scream from 2022. Because like Halloween, that's how they do it. And we were waiting. And then, of course, they pulled the crap of, you know, only in theaters. It's like, no thanks. I want to live. And then we waited until there was an option. And then the day came where we could actually get it on digital and watch it. And we did. And uh, here we are. We're going to give a brief uh, discussion. And I'm really going to try to let you... Uh, roll with it here because you're the one that has the feels that mm-hmm. uh, I got a lot of the feels need to be expressed. I will say just before I hand it over is that you're very spoiler averse. I'm very spoiler heavy. Mm-hmm. I went actively looking and within like a couple months of it uh, had found a lot of stuff. Oh, and also full spoilers, everybody. Yeah. Full spoilers. All right. You sure? Good. Because the very next sentence. Okay. So, like, I knew things immediately, like Dewey getting killed in this one and pieces of music that were going to reference the past. I, I was looking for everything. And then I was looking forward to watching it with you to see how it all came together. And I went the total opposite direction, where I was, like, actively muting and unfollowing people who were like, I'm on my way to the theater to see Scream. I'm like, no, 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 no. And I managed somehow in this internet age... As someone who makes her living writing for the internet every day to avoid all spoilers and go into this movie with nothing beyond what was in the trailer for sort of my my reference for the film. Which honestly, more than anything else, I have to say, I am very happy that I was able to do that, I was if nothing say, else. That was a positive thing to take out of this experience. <laughs> Yes, it was. Then you could still do that. Um, Because I've watched every other Scream movie without knowing what I was going to be watching. It's like I did not want to change that experience. Right. And they made it very difficult to do that with the way that they handled the rollout and the release. And I think as a fan, that's my biggest disappointment with them from like a corporate level is them not really reading the room and not really thinking about the fact that like, for example, I mean, it's now available on Paramount plus to stream yeah. for free. We we bought it when it first became available VOD yeah. to, to see it right away. They did that about a week before they put it, it on was March Paramount. 1st. Yeah. yeah. And weeks. we would have happily <laughs> paid to do that yeah. when they did it in theaters. And it's something, this is sort of my my tiny tangent here, 
it's something we've talked about a lot lately where I understand that there is still like a business model in place where you make a film, it costs you money to do that. And the idea is you then recoup that money via sales of tickets to the film, sales of copies of the disc when you put it out, sales of merchandise, whatever that might be. But what I don't understand is how even now at this point, they haven't really restructured that business model at all to think, never mind like just throwing it on a streaming service or offering a digital copy to own, just do at-home rentals. Yeah. Like do an, a same day rental from home or in the theater. There's already a, an existing model for that. There was a model for that before the pandemic. A lot of my friends who have really young kids have been doing that for years where they can't get to the theater, but they can rent a movie and watch it from home. And so that's what they do. So for me, it's really frustrating that no one, like it seems to be all or nothing, right? Like either it just shows up on a streaming service or you have to go to the theater. It's just one of those things where I wish that they would come around and I'm not sure they will. And I I completely understand that for some people they want to go to the theater and they want that experience. And I'm certainly not asking them to take that away from you. I'm just asking for them to include the rest of us, like say people who need to put subtitles on the television or people who would like to be able to pause the movie partway through to go like get something else to drink or like take a bathroom break and be able to come back and enjoy the movie. It's sort of that fallacy of you have to enjoy it on the big screen is insane. Yeah, but she says you love scary movies and that you guys have that in common. She's proud of making a fan out of you. She is? Yeah. She told me the other day, she wonders, what's your favorite scary movie? Well, let's get into the scream movie itself, which mm-hmm. is the fifth one. One of the things we were wondering about for years after Wes Craven's death, and he had, of course, helmed all four. So there's a consistency to vision and directorial approach that is almost unique in a film series to actually have that level of consistency all mm-hmm. the way through. And then he died and, and everybody felt this is over. Nev Campbell was one of the ones who was at the time very militant about never doing another screen without Wes. It's like, well, yeah, but you know, money. And I don't blame her for that, but I mean, it's like, come on money. <laughs> Somebody's going to pay you. And so then the day came and they finally said scream five. And it's uh, put together by the guys who call themselves Radio Silence. And some people might know them from the VHS uh, anthology, found footage anthology. And most more recently, the thing they really hit with was Ready or Not, uh, which started, I think, that's the movie that started getting in the traditional Hollywood phone calls for meetings. Like, what would you like to do next? You know, what properties would you like to have? And they said Scream. Their approach was to not reboot, which was rumored initially, but to do an in series continuation and play with as scream does meta wise and all the other films deal with the requel approach that 2018 halloween arguably is a good example of and in this it's 25 years after the original and Ghostface killings are starting up again in woodsboro and we've got a new group of kids to wonder about including a few legacy characters like sydney gale and dewey back again 
Marley Shelton's character of Judy is back. And we were really looking forward to this. And one of the things I think we have said in the past, and I really tried to shut up for a while, <laughs> is that um, the Scream series, and I came to it late because I came to it with you, I think it may be the most consistent quality horror series of all of those kind of series. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. There are people, of course, who disagree. But I think all four films are revisitable and fun and interesting and have something to say about their various positions in the series in that meta way. And one thing we talked about frequently before this came along is, look, Wes Craven's gone. You know, we don't know what's going to happen here. And at the very least, that's four films that are great. But wouldn't it be nice if they stuck the landing and did a fifth one? And all the signs were very positive. But uh, I think it would be charitable to say that we were very disappointed in the results. But the more I think of it, uh, the more I realize it's even it's much more than that, really. Yeah. To start off, I completely understand that for a lot of people, this was a very enjoyable Scream experience. It's for like, some people, it's their first. Yeah, for some people, it's their first. Um, some people I know have seen the rest of the series, watched it. And felt really satisfied, went so far as to say, like, they loved it. And I think maybe that got my hopes up a bit coming in. Um, But we did not enjoy it. I would not go so far as to say it's terrible or it's bad. But it's sort of like when your mom says, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. (laughs) And, like, that's what I feel like. I was a little bit worried about that coming in because I feel the same way about Ready or Not. Ready or Not is one of those movies that people absolutely adore and I want to like it like conceptually in practice. The problem is A, Ready or Not has a level of brutality and like close-up brutality that I just don't enjoy and I have trouble stomaching and B, Ready or Not was so shaky there was Mm -hmm. so much shaky cam in that film that when we watched it i think i spent at least half of it with my eyes away from the screen and you describing the action to me and unfortunately just from like a cinematography standpoint they ported both those things over to screen and we've talked a lot in the past about how we feel and i know that a lot of other horror fans would probably look at us and Hey, how can you be that? You you into the horror movies? It's about the gore. It's about the violence. But we've talked a lot in the past about our threshold for what we consider, you know, for good or bad, or what it says about us. Mm-hmm. The the threshold for what constitutes a feeling of too much pain and tragedy and death, and like an almost cartoonish element in a lot of slashers, and where that line is. And frankly, like I even said after this the screen movies in the past have always kind of danced on either side of that line Mm -hmm. uh, and had things that felt a little uncomfortable. This one I felt went the absolute furthest in wanting to make the killing so long and uncomfortable and visible on screen to the point where I found it. (laughs) I know this sounds weird coming from us. I found it extremely distasteful and even offensive in a couple of places. I think a lot of it, too, was that you've got one of your main characters who is, like, maimed at the start of the movie, like, really brutally attacked, and then attacked again, like, two or three more times while she's already 
injured. And it's like the type of injuries she's got in previous movies were the ones somebody ends up with at like the end of the film. And then they're like getting put into the ambulance at the credits. Right. And she gets those in the first scene. And it's to me a bit unfortunate. I know there's definitely brutality in the other films, but for us, I think what causes it to like turn that corner is when it feels like the filmmakers are reveling in it. Like it feels like they are enjoying watching somebody suffer. Yes. And when I see people online who are the type of horror fan who talk about a movie in terms of what awesome kills there were, and I can't wait to see this as it kills, frankly, I'm sorry, folks, even if some of you are my listeners, I start to judge people when they're measure of enjoyment of a horror film comes down to how violent and gory the kills are and boy wasn't that awesome the way that happens like i'm not sure i like the idea of talking to you about this that's not what i'm there for yeah and i know that sounds odd because we watch movies like zombie movies with exceptional levels of violence and gore but it's like i think we've already talked about it's about character and story in the midst of all that, that's mm. what really drives it for us. And that's that's different. Yeah. For me, a few things I will say that I think are are sort of checks in the pro column okay. for this movie. One is the cast. I really think the next like the next generation cast that they bring in, I think they all do a fantastic job. I think they really like threw themselves into this. Like nobody was phoning it in. Except maybe, you know, well, our legacy characters who may I are just, kind of always phoning it in. May I just say, however, I've, some things I don't think I've said until now. But like, yeah. I feel that through a great deal of it, our lead character of Melissa Barrera's character, Sam. Yeah. I think she was doing a pretty decent job of being bereft of most actual emotion through a lot of it. But given what I've often said in the past about Nev Campbell as Sydney, right? Let's just say she's upholding the tradition. I kind of felt like she was trying to mirror her energy to Nev Campbell's Sydney energy. If so, from the first scream, and so I think she does nail that. Yeah, yeah. Which is just kind of she's like kind of just lost in space. Yeah, the one played her sister is a lot more invested than she is. Yeah. Then, yeah. So I mean, I, I think that's. Uh... <laughs> That's fair, but I do think they they do a a great job of really, like, trying to be, like, the next generation and trying to be a different type of next generation than the one we got in Scream 4. Jack Quaid does chew the scenery at the end in a way that's very satisfying. (laughs) He does a good job of being crazy and unhinged at the end. Yeah. That's good. So that's sort of in the pro column. And also in the pro column for me is the fact that they actually used red right hand. Yes. Um, albeit very, very briefly. Yeah. Like on a car radio, but they kind of put it in universe, which was kind of neat. I also truly appreciated the fact that since it was going to be Dewey's farewell, they went to the trouble of getting back the track that they only actually ever used in two. That was the the track from Broken Arrow that was like his mm. western theme and they made sure that was in there and uh, like I told you afterward when a lot of us who were looking for spoilers found out there was a track on the soundtrack called Sacrifice like okay it's probably going to be one of the main characters dying and uh, I was listening to it and it was just this long slow choral and orchestral piece I mean that you hear in the movie obviously and I thought huh 
It's like, well, that sounds pretty. And then all of a sudden I hear boom, 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 boom. And I thought, oh, damn it. All right. But I mean, I think I would have put money down on him. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before in our other episodes from Doctor to Dead. If you listen to them, we've talked a lot about how neither of us feel like all of our legacy characters should have survived this many movies like this far. I mean, in terms of like the way horror movies are, maybe that's them trying to turn the trope on its head. I don't know, but it just feels very unlikely (laughs) that all three of them yeah. Would have made it through all of this. But I still, now that it's happened, I'm against it. <laughs> but I interrupted you. You were listing pros. Like, you, do you have any others in your list of things that you would put um, in the pro column? Aside from the Next Generation cast acting. Red Right Hand. Red Right Hand. The, um, the only other pro that I feel like it really has that it nails is deciding to kind of pin the crux of the reasoning for all of this on toxic fandom Mm. and that they had a good thematic idea i think that is a very good thematic idea where in four you have two people trying to like outdo the original and be celebrities they want to be celebrities yeah Yeah. and in five you have people trying to like reclaim the original as opposed to outdo it where they feel like the series has gone off the rails and you know, the Stab franchise has the, like, gold-masked ghost face with a flamethrower. By the way, I'll throw these in as we go, but I only just found out for certain that Matthew Lillard actually is the voice of Ghostface in the Stab 8 clip. Naturally. So, yeah. um, so that's kind of the crux of the reasoning of our two killers, ultimately, is that they're, like, Stab super fans Who met on Reddit. Who they met, met on the subreddit. <laughs> Yeah. And, like, they decided, like, they need to create a situation that would have a real-life story that could then be told in a subsequent Stab movie because they really liked the original Stab films that were based on the real events from Woodsboro. And now that there's no more real events from Woodsboro, it's just gone off the rails. And they were basically radicalized by the latest one, Stab 8, the eighth film in the franchise directed by Ryan Johnson because it tried to do something different that they disagreed with. Surely not based on anything in the real world. Mm-hmm. But what I thought was particularly fascinating was, didn't you tell me that like one of the things that's particularly troubling or profound or whatever about this is that in making that statement as you, a very dedicated and original Scream fan, you felt that these filmmakers did precisely what they were claiming their killers were saying had happened to their series. Yeah. I, am I making that? Yeah. Right, it's, a, it's a complicated set of emotions. Basically, right? it put you as a fan in the position of the killers because you now agreed with the killers based on what this movie was doing to your Scream series. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, right. There's a lot to unpack <laughs> in that. But basically... To me, I think, okay, you're going to do this whole, like, requel rules and, you know, the reason they're doing it is because they're toxic fans and they think that the series itself needs to remember its roots and, like, come back to where it started. That's a great statement to be making. It's And Randy's niece does a good Randy's niece does an amazing, like monologue all about like the different type of film rules right in their living room with the like 
Randy memorial in it, which I will be setting up in our home. That was cool. I mean, there, there are elements of these scenes. that Like a tiny little Heather Matarazzo cameo where she's just bringing snacks in for the kids. Possibly even shorter than she was in three. In but three. I, yeah. Which, you know, it's nice that she survives this. So yeah. we know she'll be around. Yeah. And like, that's great. But yeah, it's like basically the way that the killers in this Scream 5 felt about Stab 8 is how I feel about Scream 5. And it's like now I feel like I'm doing the opening monologue from Scream 4 where it's like, okay, but if the opening of Stab 5 is Stab 4, does that mean that the opening of Stab 6 is Stab 5? And it's like, no. It's like, I know that sounds a bit convoluted. I think it makes it very clear. But yeah, it's like, I was very disappointed. I feel like they didn't stick the landing. And really, for me, there are like three main reasons I think they didn't stick the landing so one i've kind of already covered which is this feeling of like really reveling in the brutality of it including like the very emotional like dewey decides he's gonna go back after the killer moment and dewey doesn't just get stabbed he gets stabbed with two knives front and back at the same time well he also apparently like pulls up the one so like he's like splashes blood they want to make sure you know he's being gutted yeah and that his last thing he sees is gail's face on his phone and that at the end of it he gets kicked down on the ground while he's dying to just give you a little sunny corleone moment it's like why do you want to make this so horribly tragic but then again they made dewey's entire end of life in this movie horribly tragic although i think we both agreed we're not entirely against the idea that that's probably the way that whole relationship would eventually go. But he does seem, he's so incredibly sad. As he gets like one funny line in the whole movie. No offense. None taken, but what's my motive? You got stabbed a billion times, got dumped by your famous wife, and crawled into a bottle. I think it's safe to say you're on the suspect list. Well, maybe you're the killer. Because that cut deep. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, part of my my issue with it is that I get that the filmmakers were trying to sort of show the absolute like unhinged nature of these two supposed super fans that like that's how crazy they were. But the problem is I don't feel comfortable watching it. And right. so then that creates a complicated situation for me and also dewey didn't really sacrifice himself like dewey could have gotten in the elevator with the rest of them and gone down to the lobby regrouped tried to figure out what to do instead dewey like basically committed suicide he like went back to try to unmask the person or stab him in the throat or whatever it is. You can almost argue that he knew that when he did it. Yeah, like he wanted to end it. Sacrifice is if he throws his body in between like the killer and one of the other characters in order to save them. And that to me feels like such like a, a more fitting end to Dewey's arc. It didn't occur to me how awful it is that he isn't saving Sydney or Gail. 
in his final act. Nah, he's just going back to do it because he feels like he needs to. And it's like, he has to know better at that point that like he is walking into a situation he can't handle. And he does it anyway. And it just feels so un-Dewey-like that like Dewey would have gone back down to the lobby knowing that like Gail's going to come to the hospital because he wants to make sure he keeps his body between Gail and danger. And so to me, that just felt so wrong. Not the fact that Dewey, the character, was killed, but the way that they did it. And then, as you say, in the soundtrack, framing it like it's some kind of sacrifice, which it's not. It's almost like he gave up. And that doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel very respectful to his whole character arc, which, you know, bothers both of us. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, I and mean, it's like, you know, you can argue in circles all you want, but look, let's, and, and we wouldn't be doing a show like this if we weren't these kind of people. And probably no one listening would be listening if they weren't these kind of people. So I doubt there's anybody listening who would disagree with the idea that you get emotionally invested in fictional characters, deal with it. That's the way it works. Mm -hmm. If it's working, that's what happens. Yeah. I didn't realize how much I was going to care until the moment I saw a bad version of that scene, like filmed in a theater. And I watched that in advance because I thought, all right, I'm going to need to see this ahead of time because otherwise I'm going to be in really bad shape when we watch it. That's the way I think with spoilers and stuff. So I We watched, have a different approach. I know. So I watched the cam version of the Dewey scene and I thought this is one of the saddest, most unnecessarily hurtful and cruel deaths I've ever seen in a slasher movie. And I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really realize the extent to which I didn't agree with the way the character was dealt with in that until you just explained it. But I agree with you a hundred percent about the way it's framed and the way he should have died. And, yeah. and also I'm thinking more and more now it should have been Sydney in this one, like the end of one and the beginning of another and Gail and Dewey should still be there. So that was wrong. But well, also it was clear from the start that Sydney was going to come out of it. Okay. Because the first time you see Sydney, she's jogging with a stroller and, you know, being asked how are Mark and the kids. Apparently she's married Officer McDreamy. Which, by the way, is one of those things that I count under the line. I, I love continuity references. Mm -hmm. I'm usually fine. I'm a strong proponent in Doctor Who of fan wank to the extreme. And I love that <laughs> kind of stuff. But I genuinely believe the reference, the couple references to Mark in this really start to edge into what I normally would disagree with as the damning label of fan service for no reason. Because he's back in three. We already had four. There was no indication in four that there was anything happening. Now, all of a sudden, between those two, she, what did she go back to Mark and say, hey, let's start dating and see what happens? Like the only reason he's mentioned is because I thought, oh, that's cute. We'll say it was him because he was the one last one she was like seemingly connected with except not really at all you know so yeah. it just is meaningless i mean basically they established right in the opening the opening sydney shot like yeah, not the opening right. shot of the film they established in the opening sydney shot that she's got kids right and they basically then at that point have their choice of they go one of two ways one is well now Sydney's not touchable because she's got kids 
Or two is you kill Sydney and now her kids are growing up without a mom right. like she did. And that like sets up some kind of other cycle. I'm not really sure that either of those is like the best choice. And for me as a viewer, I know at that point that they're not going to make any story choices that involve killing Sydney. So it actually kind of like took me out of it as soon as she kind of enters the picture. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like Gail is like the only person whose story arc kind of makes sense of like, she did the thing where like, she tried to live in the small town with Dewey before and like got a chance to be on TV again and was like, I'm just going to do it. And then he sort of tried living with her at this point like she tried living again in woodsboro after everything going on we she's living there with the sheriff's wife and four it's not working he tried living with her in new york apparently between four and five and just couldn't handle it and went back to woodsboro and it's like that kind of makes sense to me that she would be back on tv that she would want to sort of pursue her passions and that they just kind of weren't meant for each other i guess in that way and now she's gonna write a book about dewey which is a which is in the midst of all the things that are wrong is a touch that i thought sounded right yeah so it's like gail's arc kind of makes sense to mm -hmm. me but like sydney i mean i don't know like she tries to to tell like our new characters like in the third act of like well she's here because like she's got kids so if somebody's coming after people like she's gonna nip it in the bud so that they don't come after her kids but i kind of just don't buy it it's like it's obviously they're trying to bait her to come back into town or you could just stay at home with mark and the kids and yeah. let woodsboro sort its own stuff out right. like i i just don't necessarily buy that and i'm also not sure i really buy like drunk dewey living in a trailer because like i get that like life has beaten him down and it's been rough but also he does have a support system in woodsboro people love him like deputy judy tries to be a good friend in fact we saw a couple deleted scenes that would have made it better that would have made the movie better, including Judy coming to Dewey saying, like, we need your help on this. And she calls him sheriff. Like, yeah. like that it should still be that way. So, yeah, I don't I don't buy any of that. I don't either. And also, frankly, while we're on the subject, killing her and her son in a one-two punch for no real reason is part of that level of cruelty in this that just doesn't make any sense. She was almost kind of a comic relief character in 4. Mm -hmm. And she's almost unrecognizable in this i don't mean physically i mean they really don't seem to understand her character the one scene in in all the material where i felt i was seeing the judy from four was in the deleted scene with him and killing her and her kid just makes no sense and doesn't add anything and it's just, I, I, it actually brings me to my second point like, so you got three things and this is two this okay. is two I mean, I guess really the character work kind of like feeds in with the brutality of, right. of everything. But two, kind of pulling off that character work is that the tone is so off. Right. The I'm looking right now, by the way, at the description of it on Wikipedia that says that it it brings back the same. Let me let me, let me read this to you. Okay. Uh, 
Similar to previous entries, Scream combines the violence of the slasher genre with elements of black comedy and whodunit mystery to satirize the trend of reboots and legacy sequels. I'm sorry, where was the black comedy? I felt like, like I said, there was one line where Dewey had the one moment that felt like Dewey. The one moment where he sounded and looked and it felt like that character. And I bet it was an ad lib. It very well could have been. And it's like, there's no humor in this. It's just so heavy and dark and sad and brooding. And again, as crazy as we talk about, like, you know, you watch all four screen movies, tons of people are being stabbed and murdered. And yet, like I told you, there's this weird thing the screen movies accomplished that maybe it was all Wes Craven. Maybe. Where they felt almost lighthearted and like like there's almost a, a level, not of self-parody, but a level of kind of constantly telling you, we're in on this with you. You know, yeah. let's let's go on the ride. This one does not have that. It's brutal and it's unforgiving and it's sad. Yeah, it's like just having a character occasionally make a quippy line does not humor make. And like you said, there's a lot of dialogue in this. You still, you know, like yeah, like the the dialogue. I think like I mean, definitely as the um, boyfriend character, um, Jack Quaid? Quaid. Yeah, yeah, he's Richie. Yeah, like he is naturally a very funny person, mm-hmm. and he brings a lot of like his own comic energy to the scenes that he's in but him having like that comic energy does not change the tone of the scenes like it's not enough and you get the same thing with um brandy's niece who is yeah she's mindy meeks martin and it's jasmine savoy brown yeah who's a fantastic actress mason gooding is her brother chad yeah they're both good they're both great like they're they're all doing a a great job people are great the one who plays amber the mikey madison she plays unhinged lunatic great (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i think like mindy is a character they're really trying to bring that randy energy with Mm -hmm. her she's funny and she's great at an aside and she's sort of quippy with people but again much like it does with richie as a character it doesn't change the tone it just makes her character a little quippy and like kind of fun and overall the tone of this is just so heavy so dark and it's made i think just honestly like a thousand times worse by the fact that part of our plot line is that Barrera's character i'm already forgetting character names i'm like so traumatized well, by this she's experience sam and of sam, course, sam and right. her sister tara start out as carpenters yes so uh committing one of the worst modern horror sins of naming your characters after directors mm-hmm. uh, of course they also have wes as judy's son Yes. That at least makes a little sense to do that with somebody. But then, of course, it also means that we find out about Sam. It means that in a certain way, at least spiritually, she is, in fact, Sam Loomis. Yes. Apparently, Sam Carpenter, our, like, main point of view character, her mom in high school had a wild fling with Billy Loomis. And lo and behold, that's where she came from, born of that unholy alliance. And also is, like, medicating herself for, like, schizophrenia or, like, visions. I'm sure somebody who deals with, like, disabilities and those kind of conditions can also talk about what probably is 
seriously demonizing mishandling of that particular aspect of it because I can't imagine that makes any sense no. to people in the real world dealing with it. Never mind the fact that <laughs> Billy Loomis winds up being weirdly in a twisted sort of way redeemed into being a figure of inspiration and strength for her to get through this because her dead father's ghost keeps turning up de-aged via the magic of cgi oh my and god like halfway through the movie i was like why didn't they just get skeet ulrich to play the ghost of billy loomis and i told you that is skeet <laughs> and then i just was like oh no i really wish they hadn't tried to de-age him because it made it look like an animation yeah and like not an acting job but, but basically she's like she's seeing visions of her dead biological father whom she never met yeah because obviously she was in utero when he was murdered and who's appearing to her as he looked at the end of the original screen because presumably she's seen a, a crime photo somewhere Probably, because it's the yeah. only way in the real world she could have known what he looks like yeah at that moment yeah so i mean i just said murdered i mean he was he was killed in commission of a crime yeah but then <laughs> in this was... his function is to serve as her sort of spirit guide to say you gotta you gotta man up for like he's better like term taunting here. her the whole time of like like are you gonna tell him like are you gonna tell him the truth about who you really are and that's not entirely like the worst advice and you know she's so terrified she's gonna end up like him because that's who her father is and like somehow that's just automatically in the blood and like passed down or whatever and it's like well first of all no and second of all like maybe try i don't know just talking to somebody about it like and, and when you were making predictions yeah many months before mm -hmm. one of the things you had thought of was well maybe she's going to turn out to be the daughter of Billy Loomis and Sydney. Sydney. And the thing is, it's sitting right there that Sydney and Billy had sex. And sitting right there, as you explained to me, would be this incredible, sad, but very interesting and incredible thematic echoing of Sydney would have wound up being like her mother and giving up a child and, and mm -hmm. what that's going to mean to her and all the things she could have worked with. Not that Campbell would have necessarily been able to handle the emotional depth of what that all would have been. Fair enough. But then this movie says, oh, yeah, Billy did have a daughter with random woman we don't know. And never meet. And, and of course, there are also a lot of random partners in this. Who did Judy have her son with? It doesn't matter. Where are these other kids? Oh, it doesn't matter. Do they have parents? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> You know, and so it's like, I mean, did we get off your number two? Just we a, just tone. a little bit. Okay. You know, the, the biggest issue for me with the the especially the tone of all the scenes where she's like having visions of Billy Loomis, it's like in the end he like appears to her in a mirror, being like ah, eh? and like pointing to an umbrella that she can use as a weapon. The same type of weapon that was used to stab him when he was trying to kill Sydney, although you know it didn't actually kill him. Right. But still, it's like, thanks, Dad. Like <laughs> I mean, like what? What? What is any of this? Like you, they actually really do try to like redeem him. Yeah. And like he was a psychopath. Yeah. 
who killed a lot of people. And granted, okay, yeah, her vision of him is not Billy. Right. So it's not like redeeming Billy, but it is in a symbolic way, in a metaphorical way. To the audience it is. Yes, they are taking that character and saying he is now a representation of her inner strength and ability to overcome obstacles. In other words, she needs to tap into her inner serial killer in order to survive. And it's like, is that really the message you want to convey here? And, you know, and, and meanwhile, you've got her sister who in an otherwise kind of interesting opening of discussing the merits of A24 style, you know, elevated horror, apparently was never told by anybody on set or anybody involved in the making of the movie the proper way to pronounce the the movie. <laughs> she cannot, like, she cannot say Babadook to save her life. The Babadook. You'd think that someone on the set would be like, yeah, so in that film, the actual creature, the one that goes Babadook Duck, like, the Babadook? Yeah, like you can't not hear the name of the character in the movie that you supposedly love. The, the Babadook. Yeah. She keeps calling it the Babadook. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that... Yeah. It really... And, like, the pronunciation is so bad that, like, literally in the end, she's supposed to have this quippy line where she's like, I still like the Babadook better. I had to rewind it and put the captions on because I was like, what is she saying she liked? Because she's saying I like the Babadook better. And I'm like, what? What? Yeah. It didn't register. as So, I mean, that's that is a crime against film right there. But it's a valid criticism. Yeah. Because, again, like, you know, somebody could say, oh, now you're being petty. You're talking about so what? So the actress went, no, I'm sorry. This one's valid because that entire thing hinges on the idea that that character is an invested fan of that film mm -hmm. and that kind of storytelling. She would know how to pronounce it. She would have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that bothers me a bit. But also it's like, I don't really care about a lot of the characters. And I think that kind of pulls us into my third point, which is this movie doesn't know who its main characters are. It just doesn't know whose story this is. Is it Sam's story? Is it the, like, legacy character's story? Is it the story of this next generation of kids coming up? And to be honest, it's really hard to tell because Sam is sort of your point of view character, but she's not a high schooler. She's, like, in her mid-late 20s, like, living somewhere else. And then most of the action takes place with our legacy characters not with our teens as you pointed out too this movie introduces all the new characters and then promptly drops them for an extended portion of the film yeah only to reunite everybody at Stu's house for a party that as you put it hadn't been earned because we don't really know them yet and yet we're already done with the film yeah, I mean, you get, like, Tara, who's, like, one of our high schoolers, is the one who gets injured in the first scene. Yeah. Then you, like, have the kids all sitting around at a picnic table, like, outside the high school They wanted talking. to do that scene from the first movie where they're all sitting outside. But you're, like, looking at them, and they're all, like, joking around with each other's little in-jokes, and you're like, who the hell are you? <laughs> like, who are these people? And, like, they have a little session where mindy gives them the rundown of all the horror movie rules and they go out and play pool for a night or whatever and then just disappear and they don't show up again for like another 45 minutes or something mm -hmm. 
to me, they just didn't know who the movie was about. If anything, the first third or so, they seemed to be most interested in Dewey, but only to get rid of him. Yeah, and they're trying, like a lot of the action is Sam and Richie, who are not of this teen group. And now suddenly you're having this party going on with all these kids and you don't really know who they are or what they're about basically they're all like just archetypes like i know i know i've mentioned this before and i can't think of what the examples are now but i know we've talked about it before and i know i've talked about it in other places is that there are movies i've seen sometimes where i think if i were teaching a course in how to accomplish certain things there are great movies as examples of the positive and negative looking at the first scream in this scream is a great lesson in how you do and do not introduce a group of characters in a way that allows the audience to get to know who they are, what their personalities are like alone and with each other, and then put them through their paces in whatever story. Mm -hmm. And maybe it comes down to Craven or Williamson or some of the other people involved. But when you watch that original Scream, you very quickly have a sense of who all those kids are and how they are with each other. And arguably you have that in four as well, oh, which yeah. takes us back to Woodsboro, back to high school. In many respects, a lot of people were saying, you know, early on when, because now it seems a lot of people are being far more positive about this. Oh, I'm sure a lot of fans are going to agree with you too. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're um, this deep into it and I'll say, this is no judgment on you if you enjoyed it. Yeah, no. And, and like, I kind of envy you if like this was but satisfying. I remember that a lot of things were coming up when people were getting the first inklings of what this one was going to be like as far as what the meta thing was mm. saying like how's this going to be any different from what they already did in four because they kind of did i can eat there are definitely differences yes. and valid and interesting ones mm -hmm. in what they did in four and five but in a certain sense it's still a, a point to make that four did the revisiting of a series I say arguably i think we both agree arguably very successfully yes in a way that this did not and maybe it just all comes down to the fact that Craven was there and that it's still the same people. Yeah. You know, that it's that one singular vision. And now it's not. And these people are, and the other thing too is these people were obviously invested as fans. Mm -hmm. They love the Scream movies. Let me throw a couple other things in because this is relevant. And that, yeah. like, for instance, this movie is awash in the kind of Easter eggs and references that only come from the fact that you're a fan and you're so excited to be working with these people. Yes. Down to the things like the Randy uh, memorial in the room or the fact that Dewey has Tatum's ashes on the mantle, a character that was almost all but erased from the series after her death, which never made sense, mm -hmm. you know, except for a reference here and there. And then also throughout... There are references to Stab. The fact that, you know, after years and years of always seeing the same Heather Graham. Heather Graham. After seeing the same bit from Stab, they introduced a new Stab scene we've never seen, seeing the Randy scene from Stab. So we got to look at, a, you know, another thing there. And then also the party has ADR voiceover from people like Lillard, Drew Barrymore, Jamie Kennedy, Henry Winkler, Hayden Panettiere, Adam Brody, Wes Craven's widow. Did Lots. Ryan Johnson do some of the ADR as well? Ryan Johnson, who also they actually asked for permission, which was very nice to refer to him as the director of Stab 8. And he said mm -hmm. he'd love to be. That's awesome. And also Lillard, like I mentioned before, is ghost face in the Stab 8 clip. And one thing I didn't know until just now, Drew Barrymore is the voice of the principal in the voiceover that's like the Henry Winkler, mm. you know, principal announcement. She does that. And then, of course, in one of the biggest Easter eggs in the movie, 
There are a couple instances where we see proof that Hayden Panettiere's character of Kirby from Scream 4 is apparently alive and well. Which I'm excited about, and I wish they'd actually highlighted that instead of it being like a throwaway other YouTube video Although, on the screen. I'm not happy about it now because I figure if they do get her back, they're just going to bring her back in a Scream 6, which is already being developed. Yeah. Because this was a big hit. You know, this worked. And they're already shooting it for the end of the year for to do Scream 6. And Maybe it's like, it'll be better. It might be. I mean, it, that's possible. But uh, what worries me is they bring her back only to kill her off. It's like that's going to that's gonna piss off the very fans who are the Kirby fans <laughs> waiting for. But so, I mean, this is being done by people who are fans. Except, like you said earlier, there's a lot of convoluted unpacking to do about their very theme, their meta theme, and what's really happening here. On that point, it really, like, hurts a bit when you get to the end and you're in this scene that should feel like a fan's dream. You are back in Stu's kitchen. I like, couldn't enjoy that at all. They're monologuing in Stu's kitchen and I couldn't enjoy it either. No. It's like, I don't really, like, know who these people are. Like, Amber was barely in the movie. Yeah. She was barely in the movie. And then in the end, they're like, surprise, she's one of the killers. Did you guess it? And it's like, I don't know, who is she again? Frankly, I mean, granted, I knew going in. Yeah. Because I knew all the stuff. Yeah. But I thought she seemed so incredibly obvious. Yeah, from the start. That I thought, how are you not going to think? Like, the only thing I would think you could possibly think is she's so obvious she must be a red herring. But I thought she's so obvious there's no other option here. Yeah. And you'd also been one of many that thought out there, well, maybe they're going to really shake it up, do three killers, do independent, unaware killers. Now they just went for the standard two. Yeah. You know. And also, I think the thing that really got to me, they're like standing in the kitchen and they're monologuing and she is like talking about the films and, and Quaid's talking about the films and the two of them are just talking about how they've lost, like, everyone's lost sight of what it means to, like, really be a fan of something. And, you know, that if this is, like, the first horror movie that, like, you've really seen and enjoyed. And then people are coming along and just trying to cash in on it. And, like, at this point in the movie, when it's almost over, I'm like, that is what you are doing, filmmakers. Except that they're not really, like you said, they're fans and they really are trying to make this like love letter to scream. And like, I think I can't... it's totally well-meaning. Yeah, it's yeah. totally well-meaning and I can't be mad at them for making it. It doesn't feel like, oh, it's just this cash grab. Like they wanted to do it. But it also doesn't feel like scream. It also doesn't feel like scream. Like to me, not even a little bit. And that is where the problem is for me. And, you know, it is a movie that means a lot to me, the original Scream. It's like one of the first movies, period, never mind horror movie. It's probably one of the first movies, period, that I saw contemporary to the age that the characters are supposed to be in the film. Right. So it's like. I'm in high school. That's a specific kind of experience. I saw this movie and yeah. it's about high school kids. Granted, the actors were a little bit yeah, but, older at yeah. the time. But, but right, right. it's like I I am like in right. the film as if I am part of this group of people. And again, I don't feel like there's anybody listening to this that won't get this because we're not we're, we're preaching to the converted, you know. Yeah. I think most of the time. 
but like afterward, I felt how important it was to talk to you about it because we do care about these things. You get emotionally connected, and especially when it's a movie you feel is like that close to your heart, like it's a part of your life experience. This was your first experience ever of following a series that like eventually betrays you. I've never had that before. And I've had that many times. <laughs> and and I know there are people out there right now who are listening. You know what I'm talking about. When you're so invested as a fan in something and that sequel comes along or whatever it is that you feel is not like this isn't that. Mm -hmm. And whatever it is that you're listening right now, this is not Halloween. This isn't Star Wars. This isn't Star Trek. And granted, that thinking itself can sometimes skew toward the very toxic fandom thing that we are against and that the For movie sure. is quite rightly taking to task. Mm -hmm. But on a personal emotional level, regardless of how you externalize it, you can feel that something reaches a point where it's no longer the thing you love. And and I've told the story before somewhere, if not here, but like I remember when I used to do the tours at the museum and I was curating the museum and I used to show little kids the Star Wars room and you know i hated the prequels and i remember seeing it was taking a kid through and i was showing him the stuff and it was all my stuff because a lot of the stuff in that room i donated the original star wars toys from the 70s and i asked him if he liked star wars as a little kid and he said i love it and i said have you seen the original movies as i saw the prequels and now i've seen the original movies and i said which do you like better do you like one better than any of the others and he said i like all of it and it was a, like an eye-opening moment to me because I thought this is his now and like mine is of a particular time. But it's still kind of like mourning a death. It's kind of like mourning a real person. Mm -hmm. And it's tough. And I went through that when Halloween became a series that didn't make any sense to me anymore. And, and I know how that feels. And it kind of sticks with you for a while. It's still sticking with me. And it's... one day you're going to be able to watch the other ones again and just say, that's what it is for me is those four. But the problem I've always had, and it's difficult for me to deal with is when you do that, there's also the thing of, yeah, but I also know what happens. Like I, I know that yeah. I know if I go back that as far as the official story is concerned, this is where these people wind up and it's hard to put that aside. But like Halloween, for instance, I can put that aside now and watch the ones I like and not think about the ones that came after. But that took a good like 20 years <laughs> to get to that point. It's a tough one. And, and it's, I think all of us understand it speaks to a very deep issue, which is that we become very much emotionally invested in the media that we love. Mm -hmm. And it's hard when that goes in a different direction. Yeah, and I think maybe really just as like a capper to all of it, I think it's kind of important. Although I think it's been kind of clear in, in what I've been saying, but important to articulate that I'm not mad at them for making it, but I am sad that it exists, you yeah. know? And if you did enjoy it, I'm glad that you did. And, you know, it's, it's good that it exists for those who, enjoy where it took the series or maybe for people who it was their introduction to the series and now they're going to go back and watch the other ones and they're going to be like the little star wars kid who's like i like all of them and that's great if that's 
you. I just, I think this is the first time I watched a Scream movie and I felt like I don't think they made this for me. And it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latosky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at NBLatosky, that's NBLit of Sky, and Arnold at Dr. The Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Scream 2022. Isn't that a little fancy pants? Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. What's your favorite scary movie?